This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. For five long years in the 1950s, Senator Joseph McCarthy's anti-communist crusade dominated the American scene, terrified politicians, and destroyed the lives of thousands of U.S. citizens. In his book, The Age of Anxiety, McCarthyism to Terrorism, our guest today, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Haynes Johnson, tells this story through the lens of its relevance to our own time, when the current administration has created a culture of fear that again affects American behavior and attitudes. Until recently, Johnson was associated with the Washington Post as a national affairs columnist. He's the author of five bestsellers, including The Best of Times. Haynes Johnson, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? It's fine. Uh, Washington's good. We're we're bright here. The rest of the country, I don't know. Uh, Really? It's it's sunny there? I mean, Washington is always, you know, it's never normal here. It's not just the weather. The atmosphere is electric here in the city. Everything is uncertain. We're looking up to a great, uh, important speech tomorrow night Uh uh, that's going to be critical in history, I think, for this president and our future years to come on the Iraq situation from Bush. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit frightened myself uh, as to what's going to happen. Uh, uh, do you feel optimistic? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I, I'm, I, I would like to say I would. I'd like to be an optimist. I'd like to feel good about it. Uh, it seems to me I don't. Uh, hard to find anything that looks good about sending twenty or thirty thousand more troops into the abyss that's Iraq, that has been Iraq, and I don't see how that's going to do anything but create more casualties and not uh, create the a model democracy that the president's been talking about for six years. I want to ask you, because this has been floating around, uh, that uh, one of the reasons we're talking about twenty or 30,000 troops is uh, that this is actually to prepare for Iran, an action, military action against Iran. Have you heard anything about that? Oh, yes. Uh, Washington, as always, has been not just a buzz, but they are planning operations involving Iran, uh, singled out as one of the axes of evil some years ago in the President's State of the Union message. And uh, Iran is being seen as now the real enemy, the real target. And the fear is that if Iraq, if we don't pacify Iraq and solve the problems there, I'm not saying we can at all, but that's the, that's the premise, that we'll be dra- dragged into a r- real confrontation with Iran, and, and, and the whole Middle East will go up in flames. So there's nothing good about this prostrate right now. But uh, what I mean is that the 20,000 troops are really intended to be for Iran, not even Iraq. Well, no, I don't know about that. Okay. I can't. Uh, okay. I, I don't know that that's the case. I, okay. In fact, I just believe that uh, okay. twenty thousand troops for Iran would not be enough. Number one, uh, Iraq fought a war against Iran, and they, with when Saddam was in power, and they lost more than a million casualties on both sides. Yeah. So I don't think the twenty thousand and added to one hundred forty thousand American troops would make the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think that's the case. Okay. Well, it, either way, it is an age of anxiety. Yes. And uh, that's the name of your book. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that period of time, can you just give us a, a little primer on uh, McCarthy and McCarthyism? 
Yeah, I the the title is goes back to the period when when the uh, 9/11 happened. We all had this understandable fear that things had changed forever in America, and we were sinking into a an abyss that we hadn't been in before. Uh, fears were, you know, you can't go to airports. You're looking up in the skies. You can't fly. Uh, terrorism is around, and so forth. And it seemed to me that we had forgotten the real fear. The real fear that existed after the cold, when the Cold War began in 1946 with the Soviet Union, when they had the atomic bomb, then they were, we were about to launch the hydrogen bomb, and the Cold War had started in real, and people were in school, were uh, school children who would be listening or alive at the time, will remember huddling under their desks in grammar school because uh, for, to protect themselves from nuclear attack. Of course, it wouldn't have protected themselves. And people were having uh, fallout shelters in the backyard. Uh, there were civil defense uh, structures in every city in America and, and the downtown of our country. And the fear was that civilization as we knew it was about to be extinguished by that fear. And that fear led to the growth of the demagogue named Joe McCarthy. He took that legitimate fear, concerns, and translated it into political power by attacking enemies within, as he called them, traitors within, as he said, uh, from the president on down. The reason we were in trouble was because we had traitors and we had given away our secrets uh, to the Russians and we were being infested by spies, and it started from the White House on down. Now, this was this got personal with you too. I mean, it involved your family. Your your father was a writer at the time, and yes. and, uh, and he was was part of all this. He was being accused. Well, yes, that's. Uh, I always thought that I would go back at some point. I, this is my fourteenth book, and you were nice to say five of them became national bestsellers, which is I'm, I'm happy that happened. <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, th- but this is. The st- I always thought I'd go back and revisit the fear and the, the the actual internal terror and the damage that McCarthy did to the country. We now call it McCarthyism, that is attacking uh, people unfairly, uh, smear and attacks on their character, and uh, people losing jobs and being blackballed and, and all of that sort of thing. My father had won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of articles called Crime on the Waterfront in New York City, which was made into the movie On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. I was in high school at the time, and no sooner had the stories began than the president of the corrupt Longshoremen's Union, the International Longshoremen's Association, Joe Ryan, began accusing him from day one that this was the, it was all communist propaganda, that my father was a tool of the communists, and so forth. In fact, Ryan later went to jail. The union was expelled, the only one in the history of the AFL for racketeering, and, and so all that. But this went on for five years, mm-hmm. and and before the movie could be made, threatened national boycotts, and my father was attacked as a communist over and over and over again, and so were all the people involved in the movie later on. So I remember that very well, and then I went into the Army and uh, during the Korean War. I was served for three years, from 52 to, uh, uh, to 55, and that's when Joe McCarthy was at his peak. And I remember vividly what it was like to be in the military service at that time when McCarthy was attacking the Army itself and all the leaders of the country from George Marshall on down, who was the most revered figure in the country, even more than Eisenhower, as being communist, communist traitors, communist symbols, and so forth. The morale went down. And so I remember that period very, very well. And uh, that's one reason I wanted to go back and recall, see if I could find what the lessons were, but tell people who weren't around then what happened, 
why it's important to learn the lessons of history and how they can keep repeating themselves into the future, as we've seen in these last few years over Iraq. To what extent was uh, Joe McCarthy a, a lone wolf on this? Was he? What kind of support was he getting from a political entity, a think tank? Where was his information and where was his political support coming from? That's a very good question. Uh, McCarthy uh, was, was not a lone wolf. That is to say, he wasn't the first to talk about communism, the first to, to talk about the, the, the fear of communism and the threat that it faced in the world. In fact, the Republican uh, Party at that time won back control of the Congress in 1946 when he was elected for the first time since 1928 uh, by, uh, by fear of communism, using that, that threat. McCarthy picked it up and used it and exploited it in the years to come until he, as, as it got more and more ominous as the Cold War enveloped, and he, so he, was, he became a useful vehicle for the party at that time, and they didn't like McCarthy. He didn't have many, and I'm not, there are two things. He, he was a likable rake, a rogue and all that, apparently charming at that time, uh, later on not so much at all. But uh, McCarthy was, was viewed as, as, even by the Republicans, as sort of a, an outrageous uh, guy, but he was useful. And he became their most successful candidate, making speeches for party members around the country. And he led to the defeat of a number of leading Democrats, the majority leader of the House, the Senate. The, all those things took place under McCarthy. And losing the, the White House, he started attacking Truman, using the fear of communism. So as he evolved with more and more power, he became almost an untouchable. And then he was really off in this period of fear that uh, is unparalleled in American history. Well, in addition to the uh, support he was getting from the Republican Party, by the way, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with uh, Haynes Johnson. The book is The Age of Anxiety, McCarthyism to Terrorism. But in addition to the political support he was getting from the Republicans, there was also a context outside of the political realm uh, with the trials of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and there were a number of other sort of outside um, events that were occurring that it fed into this hysteria. Yes, it did. And, and it was, hysteria is the word because the Rosenbergs, as Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, were uh, arrested and convicted and executed as being uh, communist spies or passing on information to the Russians. I don't think that it should have ever been executed. There's no doubt that they did indeed pass on secrets to the Soviet Union, but the secrets wouldn't have held. Anyhow, the Soviet Union would have had the bomb in a year or so, uh, as the best scientists know and would tell you. But nonetheless, uh, it was a part of the backdrop that there were indeed spies. And of course, why should we be surprised? We have spies all over the world ourselves and, mm-hmm. and so do the, everybody else. But this sense of the enemy within, mm-hmm. that's what it was. And so you had things like the, the, the Rosenbergs and the, all the, the, and the and Jagger Hoover, the, the FBI was uh, wiretapping and following people. There was a cloud of fear and suspicion. Unlike anything we've had, worse than this period right now even, in that, and how enveloping it was, although the same kinds of tactics applied then as well as now. So, uh, Go ahead, Mike. Um, I was just going to continue on. Um, as, he, as he gained momentum or, and uh, was able to attract a lot of attention, he went after the Army. You referred to that earlier. Um, at what point... I mean, this is one of the revered institutions in America, the, the armed forces. 
And who who was who led the pushback on on McCarthy, and that, didn't that begin to pre- precipitate his his undoing? Well, by that point, uh, it, it really is important to put in context for for people who don't remember the period at all or haven't read about it or studied it that McCarthyism, as we now know it in a part of history, lasted for five years from 1950 through 1955. The communist sphere had been building up for years before that, as I said, over the Cold War, the bomb, the Rosenberg spies, and all that. But the the fear that that McCarthy enveloped and and used uh, so effectively was in that period when he was riding ever more powerful. He wanted to be president of the United States. And Eisenhower becomes the first Republican president again since 1928, since Hoover was elected in 1928, ending the Democratic rule of the New Deal and Harry Truman, and here comes Ike in there. And and not only did uh, McCarthy attack uh, the, this is what happened, not only did he attack the Democrats as being the party of treason and, and the rest, he started attacking Eisenhower and the Republicans themselves. And this is where... It's almost Shakespearean, sort of a tragedy in many ways of of, uh, someone who's hubris, who's psychopathic behavior. He was a drunk. He was drinking wildly. And he became more and more convinced that he was the most powerful man in the country. And in fact, in many ways, he was. Uh, and he he had a, he had an effect on that period of conformity and spies and traitors within and attacking intellectuals, writers, teachers, uh, you name it, newspaper people, journalists were all linked as the part of the communist conspiracy. And as McCarthy got more and more powerful, more and more th- things fell into his hands. He really thought he could be elected president of the United States, and so did Eisenhower, by the way. Mm. I, I one of the things that uh, I don't want to keep uh, monologue here, but one of the things that was most fascinating to me uh, is how I've changed my opinion of Eisenhower. And I have to say that when I came to Washington, I came here in 1957 as a young reporter, hard-eyed, three years in the Army, graduate of, uh, I got a master's in American history at the University of Wisconsin, and Eisenhower was just starting his second term. He's the first president I traveled with, and I did travel with him. And McCarthy had just died three months before, but I, I w- and I thought Eisenhower was this old kind of doddering grandfatherly guy, not very effective, and I didn't have much respect for him. I now have totally changed my view on what I find in the records and the archives and all the rest. Eisenhower loathed McCarthy. He had all the great instincts to take him on, to uh, eliminate his, his danger and his threat to American democracy. But he wouldn't do it despite the importunings of, of his closest friends, his, his brother Milton, who was his closest advisors, other people within the administration, because he felt, and he, he would say over and over again, I'm not going to get down in the gutter mm-hmm. with that guy, the gutter being with Joe McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was convinced that, I, that Eisenhower was, that in the, the end, McCarthy would self-destruct. And he did, but it took five years for that to happen. And if Eisenhower, and I say this in the book, if Eisenhower would only make a kind of Edward R. Murrow speech to the country with his great respect and the esteem that people had for Ike, the great World War II commander, I think he would have ended McCarthyism and ended that because all of his instincts were noble, they were decent, and all that. So I have a feeling about Ike now that I didn't have at all before, that he was a very great president and a tragic one because he failed to reach that, make that test for the reasons that I've said. So what ultimately was 
McCarthy's undoing? Was it the Army McCarthy hearings? Was that it, it's when McCarthy? It was one thing when McCarthy would attack the Democrats, the liberals, the writers, the intellectuals, Hollywood, the universities, the uh, uh, journalism. Uh, so that that was a became a, a shibboleth of the times and very effective uh, demagogically, to be sure. But it was when he started attacking, reaching out, and going beyond the Democrats and started attacking Republicans and the Republican State Department with John Foster Dulles and attacking that we weren't being effective enough in fighting communism, that Eisenhower was failing. It was at that point that the forces began to mobilize behind the scenes to bring him down. And his greatest mistake was taking on the army. Mm-hmm. He overreached very much. He didn't understand that the people still had enormous respect for the uniformed services. And here we are in the midst of Korea, in which we lost 40,000 casual deaths, battle deaths, 100,000 casualties. It was the first really confrontation. It wasn't a cold war. It was a hot war, a bloody, terrible war, when the Chinese came in down from the Yalu and almost threw us into the sea. And so at that point, it was the country was very concerned, very uh, nervous, but, but they didn't want to see, they didn't believe their leaders, their uniformed military people were communists and traitors. That's what McCarthy the overreach way too far, and it brought him down. And in the, in the end, what really brought him down was when the American people could actually see him on television. The Army McCarthy hearings that were televised uh, in the spring and summer of 1954 were the most watched television event in history up to that time. And it, it, it had enormous power because people saw this bullying frightening, ominous guy attacking people viciously and and then cackling and giggling in this strange little laugh that he had. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a fearsome thing, and that that, that really did him in. That and his own egomania now. It was just had reached a point that he he couldn't be contained, despite the importunings of his friends. We're speaking with Haynes Johnson. The book is The Age of Anxiety, McCarthyism to Terrorism. Now, Let's let's bring this discussion up to date now. Uh, or, I want to ask okay. one quick question about one more question about that okay, time. I know that you had said in your research that there were a number of volumes uh, that are still sealed, that the, that his widow has sealed until their daughter dies, which may be some time from now. But did you ever get a sense from what you read about him in the papers that are available that he actually was? in on it? I mean, he knew what he was doing, that he had a sense that this was going too far and that he was doing things that were destructive? Yes, I did. And and one of my great frustrations was, as you are right to say, I went out to the archives at uh, Marquette University where McCarthy went to school and graduated from law school, and the McCarthy papers were donated there by his widow, Jean, who died many years ago, and they uh, they all there were thirty, I think, twenty six installments of the papers. Half of them were sealed uh, because they had adopted a daughter just before McCarthy died, and and they were to be sealed forever until she gave authority or the or the wife who's now dead, and she didn't do that. The the part the papers that are sealed are the part that I am convinced will make the McCarthy 
personal story even more sordid. Mm-hmm. The records of his dealings, his money, uh, his mm-hmm. trading, his military records, he falsified his military records, the people he saw with, the network he put up uh, with the communist conspirators who were attacking, that is, the uh, anti-communist conspirators. And so all of that, I think, is going to look much more uh, much more grim uh, in history's books. But I couldn't get it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. There was enough in there, though, yeah. that I did get. I was going to ask uh, before then about just bring this into into the present uh, with with George Bush challenging the army and with the relationship that they have right now is is there any thim- similarity between uh, today's situation and age of anxiety one, yeah age of anxiety and and the uh, the army McCarthy hearings well there are real parallels today it isn't so much that the uh military, although I think the military will be seen, I've thought this for years, that the real story of the Bush administration is going to be, and we're seeing it more and more come out now, is the private feeling of the uniform armed forces, particularly the top generals and colonels and, and the people who are leading the strategy, who are very much opposed to this rush into Iraq with no planning, brushed off on an ideological crusade. They thought it was a mistake, could lead to disaster, as it has. We're seeing more and more of that coming out now. The same thing was true in the Army McCarthy period. Uh, but the, 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 So that's one thing. I think the real uh, parallels, as I call them, between now and then, is how fear can be used and exploited for demagogic purposes. To use legitimate fear over terrorism, for instance, to attack your enemies as being cowards or uh, un-American or unworthy or immoral or cut-and-run cowards, uh, people who have valid, valid, valiantly served in the military, even wounded and decorated. And that's what we've seen, uh, a, a legacy yeah. of using uh, fear to smear uh, enemies and uh, attack and to gain power. And that's what we've seen in this period, unfortunately. Yeah, that is his legacy, isn't it? That One of the tragedies of McCarthy is, for me anyway, is that it's closed off legitimate areas of political debate in this country. You can't even mention some things without being referred to as some kind of a unpatriotic American. And and that was framed in during that period of time, wasn't it? Absolutely, and I think that is the great tragedy because we have a wonderfully complicated and vibrant society and, and our, our pride should be in the, our ability to speak our minds, to raise questions, to hold people in power uh, accountable, and we haven't done that, to raise questions from the press to the Congress to the people about what our leaders are doing about it, and we should have hard debates, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to disintegrate into smear and fear attacks, and that's what we've done. And so the legacy has been to anybody who runs, who until very recently, who rises up is attacked as a, a soft on terrorism, as they were soft on communism. So I think that's a real tragedy, and we've we've got to get beyond that for our own good, well, because we need to have real debates and real accountability. Well, in the last election, Donald Rumsfeld essentially called people who questioned the policy un-American or unpatriotic, and George Bush himself said that uh, the, the terrorists were hoping the Democrats would take the, the, back the House and Senate. Yes, I, I think I really do think that it, it's going to be a shameful period when you look back using exploiting the fear that the nuclear cloud is hovering over us that was used in the, the last election, presidential election, and the last two midterms, not this one. It didn't work this time. No. They used it again. But this time, uh, because everybody can see what's happening in Iraq, the erosion 
daily of seeing, turning on your television, seeing nothing but flames and, and disasters taking place has had a powerful, powerful, belated effect on our psyche. Haynes Johnson, do you see a possible constitutional crisis if the military essentially balk at what the president wants to do? Do you see something in this dynamic where the military will say no more and we will be faced with this sort of civilian military control crisis? Well, I have friends who have written novels in years past about those conspiracies that the military would take over and they'd be pushing back in the Cold War period. And I have never thought that was likely. But it is a permanent problem to worry about because we have one thing that worries me enormously is that we are so divided in the country and very few people have actually served in the military and so there's a division between the the, the uniformed services and not uh, i think that the, the the record is so far that the military is is, is faithful and trustworthy they're honorable Yes, they've made mistakes. The uh, appalling prison abuses were were, were uh, some of the worst things that's ever happened in our history. Uh, I, I, you know, but I don't, I don't see that. But there, there's always that problem, and in a very, very emotional, raw time, particularly if we have more problems ahead, like more disasters, and advice is not taken, or we get into more and more casualties, or the war erupts in the Middle East in, in a way and spreads throughout. Then you could see some sort of real uh, development that could be quite uh, frightening. Well, send us out on a positive note. With the change in Congress, do you see things less anxiety in our future? Do you see some an opening up of the process? Yeah, do you see- I, I don't. I, I'm glad you said that. I don't want to leave the thought that I am awash in gloom and doom and and think the worst of the wall, world is falling. We have terrible problems. But I am optimistic about, if you take the long view of American history, it takes us a while to define what we think is right. And usually, we all, up till now, we've always got it right in the end. The Iraq war is now in its sixth year, and its longest lasted, I mean, the, the, the age of terrorism is in its sixth year. Yeah. The Iraqi war has lasted longer than World War II and the, and the Civil War. And so we're now in a period that, that, that this is in the backdrop. But I think the country, this last election, the midterm election, the fact showed that the people absolutely responded. Yes, they were slow, I think, in doing that, but it, they sent a clear signal. And now we're going to see what happens. Yeah. This is a very exciting time. Very good. Well, Haynes Johnson, the book is The Age of Anxiety. Thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Thanks. For, I've enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.